to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, the day has finally come where we are talking about Newsies and we are talking about it with the great Madam Clairvoyant, Claire Comstock Gay. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. And in this episode, this is the only time you're going to hear from me. Well, aside from the end credits, this is one where we brought in our fabulous producer, Carolyn Kendrick, to sit in in my stead. And this is becoming a bit of an end of year slash beginning of year tradition. Uh, Last year around this time, Carolyn, Claire, and Sarah talked about Titanic. So I'm looking forward to listening to this as much as you are. Again, this episode is about Newsies, which is, of course, a 1992 American historical musical comedy drama film. That's a lot of words hyphenated and crammed together wikipedia film produced by walt disney pictures and directed by choreographer kenny ortega in his directing debut if you know anything about sarah marshall you know that she loves this movie uh she has covered the newsboys strike on you're wrong about if this is your first time encountering uh, conversations about this you have more to listen to over on you're wrong about and uh yeah I'm so happy that they are covering this movie. Claire is author of Guide to the Stars, Astrology, Our Icons, and Ourselves, a book we all have in each of our houses and a book that we all love. And you are a good producer and today co-host Carolyn Kendrick is a singer, songwriter, fiddler, and guitarist, uh, obviously producer of this show and a music producer as well. And she has a new song out called Break of Day, which you should check out. It'll be linked in the show notes. You can find us, You Are Good, on Twitter at You Are Good Pod. You can find us on Instagram at You Are Good Pod. If you like the show and you want to support the show, thank you so much for wanting to do so. You can find us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions where you will get bonus episodes. So thank you so much for all of your support. And also, we have great new merch by friend of the show, Drusilla Adeline. She made a wonderful design at our request based on our conversation about Ghostbusters 2. It's gorgeous. I love this shirt so much. You can also get mugs if you want to get those. It reads, death is but a door, time is but a window. So be sure to check that out. How's everything in your world? Welcome to the first full episode of the new year. We're so happy to be here. We are so happy you are here and you, my friend, are good. I cannot believe we get to do this, but here we are. So let's do this together. Let's talk about Newsies. Hello, Sarah Marshall. (laughs) Hello, Carolyn Kendrick. Oh, gosh, I had an annoying thing I was going to sing, and I've already forgotten what it was. Don't worry. There'll be other stuff. This is going to be a singing-heavy episode, I hope. Fingers crossed. 100%. We're past any kind of not singing in this household. (laughs) And Sarah, what are we watching today, and who are we watching it with? Today, we are talking about Newsies, the greatest film ever made, and we're talking about it with... Madame Clairvoyant, Claire Comstock Gay, the greatest human ever made. Yay! Hi, Claire. (laughs) Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? I am great. I am so excited to revisit this movie of my youth with the two of you today. And Carolyn, did you watch this movie when you were growing up? When was your first time with Newsies? Well, so I have a potentially shocking confession to make (laughs) is that throughout our entire friendship and our entire professional life, I have kept it to myself that I've never watched Newsies because (laughs) at some point I wanted to surprise you so that we could potentially watch it together. But then this was pitched and I was like, well, this is the second best option. So I have been wanting to watch Newsies like ever since you first told me about it, but then I just haven't had the right opportunity until now. So I am a fresh viewer of Newsies. (sighs) This is incredible. This is so special. And also like, yeah, I assume that people haven't seen Newsies unless they're like, oh, my God, Newsies. And have you (laughs) seen Swing Kids? No, that's going to be the next one. Let's watch that together. I would love that. Yeah. But Sarah, this is if someone asked me on the street, like if Billy Eichner came up to me and was like, what's Sarah Marshall's favorite movie? I would say I would say Newsies. I feel like it's the movie most essential to me. And when I watch it 
like I have such complicated feelings about it. I mean, they're positive, but there's a little bit of complicated wash over it. I first saw this in the summer of 2003 mm. because I loved Swing Kids, which is a movie also starring Christian Bale and Robert Sean Leonard from Dead Poet Society about teenagers in Hamburg, Germany, who love swing music on like the eve of World War II mm. and how like the Nazis are like infiltrating their lives and like Christian Bale becomes a Nazi and like <gasps> buys into it. And it's like very fucking prescient. Wow. Unfortunately, where it's like, yeah, sometimes in a time of instability and rising fascism, like your friends will become Nazis <laughs> and you have to deal with that. And so I love Swing Kids and I wanted to write fan fiction about it because I loved fanfiction.net where previously I had written fanfiction hmm. <laughs> primarily about Farscape, <laughs> which if you know, you know. Um, <laughs> so I love Swing Kids, but there wasn't like a bustling fandom around Swing Kids on fanfiction.net or really like anywhere that I could find. Too bad. Bummer. <laughs> I know, right? I, want, I hope there is now. Mm -hmm. But you know what there was? I, at the time, I think there were like 2,000 fanfics of was Newsies. And I was like, well, I should watch Newsies because that's got Christian Bale in it, who actually I don't really like as much as Robert Sean Leonard because, you know, he became a Nazi. But <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, I got to watch Newsies. And so I watched it. And from that day, I have loved Newsies so much. It is a weird, wonderful and improbable 1992 musical that was in theaters for about 25 minutes <laughs> based in large part on David Nassau's Children of the City, I believe, which went into great detail about the Newsboys strike of 1899, which was mm. this like very important within the history of the labor movement strike undertaken by the newsboys of New York City, which actually did like terrify the powers that be mm. in the sense of like, my God, like if the newsboys succeed in this like unionization, what of all the other child labor that our city and country depends upon in order to function at all? So it was really a significant event. And so we have a Disney live action musical about it starring Christian Bale. And in real life, the newsboys strike ended in kind of a dead heat where the newsboys won some rights, but they didn't win the crucial point that they were striking on mm. really largely about, which was about the rising price of their papers. And also their leader betrayed them and was bought out by the bosses. And the conclusion of this movie is that Christian Bale, as the leader of the striking newsboys, who when I was 15, I did find very striking, ha ha ha, <laughs> is momentarily bought out by the boss, Joseph Pulitzer, played in the role of a lifetime <laughs> by <laughs> Robert Duvall. Anyone who would dare to <laughs> What a performance. We'll get into it. And Jack is momentarily bought out and then comes back to his roots and supports the newsboys in their final push to win in their strike against Joseph Pulitzer and him gouging them by raising the prices on the newspapers they have to buy to sell to the public. Mm. This movie is like, it starts off like strong premise wise and then it really drags in the middle. It's two hours long, which is like unforgivably long for a children's movie. I was shocked that it was two hours long. I was shocked when I sat down to watch this. I know. Certain I was in for a nice brisk 90 minutes. <laughs> I was like, oh no. Like, what is this LA confidential? <laughs> <laughs> I will be neither the first nor the last to admit that this movie has flaws, but the driving engine to me really is the friendship between Jack Kelly and David Jacobs, his best friend, and the admittedly inexpert and yet very enthusiastic choreography to all these mm -hmm. wonderful songs set to a score by Alan Menken. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then the ending, which like gets me every time, where the Newsies distribute their own newspaper, which they print on Pulitzer's own equipment mm -hmm. and then distribute to all the child workers of the city who then show up and there's just like one million kids just like chanting strike 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 and there's a kid who has a sign that just says unfair <laughs> Pulitzer's like furious and he's like you shut up you shut up and listen to me for once in your life and 
Jack is like makes him see the like sea of striking children mm-hmm. and he just capitulates. He's just like, okay, you got me. Fine. You win. You win. Yeah. The ending of like child laborer solidarity always gets me. And then I wonder if Disney's lack of faith in the movie has anything to do with the fact that you know, as a corporation, it is dependent on child labor. So you don't really mm. want to like make too much of a comment about that <laughs> if you're Disney. But yeah, what I would love to hear about both of your experiences of Newsies. Yeah. Well, so I have not watched this movie in probably two decades. Mm. It's been a long gap. I first watched it like as a child, you know, when it was coming out and my friend's cool older sister and her friends were all obsessed with the Newsies and they would sing the songs like the one about especially they were obsessed with singing about the porcelain tub with boiling water. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Saturday night with the mayor's daughter. <laughs> the accents are so... They're so on. They're having so much fun singing in those accents. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These kids from like Glendale. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought it was really cool. And then in middle school, the most uncool music teacher every year, multiple times a year, showed Newsies to her classes. And so then it was like, oh, is this actually like a really losery movie? You know how kind of I feel like... There's always these conversations like teachers need to show cooler stuff to their kids. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's like whatever the teacher shows you is going to get spoiled. It's a school movie from then on. It's a school book. Totally. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, oh, Newsies is a school movie. Yeah. So it was a delight to return to it fresh. Mrs. Erickson's not the boss of me anymore. (laughs) That's so true. And it was fun. I had a great time. I was surprised by how much of a great time I had this time. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. You and I were both only children Mm. in in the sense that like we didn't have other kids, kids age around us. Right. Right. Like you have half siblings and I eventually have a brother who's like 12 years younger than me. But I wonder if this is a movie that really resonates for lonely kids. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. And there are so many movies and shows that I love just because they simulate the experience of being in a friend group or like in a family. Yes, and yeah. I think that's true for a lot of people. And like, you know, maybe the most obvious example is friends. Yeah. Where it's like, oh. for 22 <laughs> minutes, you too can have friends. <laughs> Their whole vibe really reminded me of the Lost Boys from Hook and yeah. from, you know, the general Peter mm-hmm. Pan enterprise, which is the same idea. You know, you go and you have adventures with your friends. And it's like the same era too. And they all like sleep in a shared space. And there's this like... Okay, so like, just to get it out there early, there's really an interesting concept at play here of like, how much do we see like the female gaze (laughs) at work here in this movie? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, just the gaze that's interested in teenage boys, because Mm -hmm. the opening of this movie is like when I was 15, I was like, praise the Lord, because it's like (laughs) it opens in the newsboy's bunkhouse and it's all of them sleeping and they're long underwear and they're all flushed and sweaty. It's a hot summer day. They're going to like get up and all like bathe and shave and like get ready for the day together. And it is truly like a locker room scene like a Magic Mike XXL level of like, this one is for the ladies, the 15-year-old <laughs> ladies. It really is. Those little children smoking their cigars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, so I, I've been dying to ask. So I know that you wrote fan fiction about this. Did you write fan fiction about Jack and David? Yes. I did. Okay. I figured because their sexual tension is palpable, obviously. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And it's actually shocking that David even has a sister, and I don't even know why they bother. (laughs) She is a beard. (laughs) Yeah. This is really directed by Kenny Ortega. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And it's so funny, too, because it's like, It feels like Kenny Ortega before he had his rough edges sanded off because Mm, the Kenny mm -hmm. Ortega that made the high school's musical (laughs) seems like much more understanding of what the tweens want and willing to give it to them, or at least what the studio believes the tweens Mm -hmm. want, where it's like, you know, it's about 
a really cute girl and a really cute guy mm-hmm. singing to each other and kissing a lot. That's the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, the sister feels like they got some footage from a different movie, right? They needed a girl. They were like, oh no, there's no girls in this whole movie. Like, yeah. They're like, we have to have at least one. Well, and then another thing that happened there that I find so interesting is that kind of growing up in the Newsies fandom, I feel like a lot of the teenage girls I knew from there because they were almost entirely teenage girls at the time, like grew into some kind of queer identity. And I think like the Newsies fandom was among other things a way to sort of step into that Mm -hmm. for many of us because for one thing in this like girl vacuum where the only women are sarah jacobs who's like the sophia coppola of newsies where it's like he's just written it's the (laughs) the character is written so weirdly that she just never had a shot to make it work you feel so bad Mm -hmm. for the actress ellie keats and david's mother Deborah Lee Furness, <laughs> Mrs. Mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman, and Margaret, and some nuns. <laughs> like, you just identify with, like, the boys in the mm-hmm. movie. You just, like, these are the characters that you identify with. Like, who are you going to identify with? Anne Margaret? <laughs> like you've said before in the past to Sarah, if you don't know how to actually give a character internal thought and actual personhood then yeah you just don't even don't bother you know Mm -hmm. right like don't have a charade of having female characters if none of them actually have character it was weird in my memory of this movie the you know girl love interest was like a rich girl Mm. why did I get that memory I can kind of see do you know what I mean because that's how it that's how they show her I think that's how it is in the like off-Broadway musical is it well they like they kind of solved the Sarah Jacobs problem and I haven't watched the whole thing people have recommended it to me they're like it's great it solves many of the storytelling problems in the original Newsies. <laughs> and that's like telling me, like, you know your ex-husband, Adam Driver? Well, <laughs> forget him. We have a new husband for you. He's Hugh Jackman. Mm. And it's like, no, I liked my ugly husband. Give me my ugly husband. <laughs> <laughs> I love it as like a very awkward piece of storytelling that is like specific to my memory. Mm-hmm. However, I have heard from reliable sources that the off-Broadway musical solves the problem, the Sarah Jacobs paradox, if you will, by merging Sarah's character with Denton, what? the Bill Pullman character, who I haven't even mentioned yet, who is an adult reporter who is like very, I don't know, like a little bit too interested in David Jacobs is what I feel. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like this is solving one problem by creating six others. Like, I don't know about (laughs) any of this. Yeah, definitely. And Bill Pullman's character in general, it's like an interesting conundrum because on one hand, you like, you want to have adults in the room that are advocating for the needs of children, mm-hmm. which he is doing, arguably. But at the same time, you're it's like so uncommon to see people advocating in that role that like it kind of puts up my red flag hackles a little bit. Um, and I don't know if that's justified or not. Like, I think that might just be like a gut response to be like, wait, he's helping them. But like, there's got to be some other angle here. And it turns out that there's not really. But that mm-hmm. was kind of my first instinct was like, mm, danger, adult danger, you know? <laughs> totally. Well, and it's funny because you just finished processing an episode about why you were sleeping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which came out around the same time as this. And mm-hmm. like from that movie and others of the period, I feel like we all have a very clear idea of like what Bill Pullman does when he's acting being flirtatious. Mm-hmm. And I think because of his lack of range as an actor, it feels like he's flirting with this teenage boy. <sighs> yes. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, I know Bill Pullman's move. Yeah. And it's to kind of go like this, just to tilt his <laughs> head slightly smile. towards uh-huh. you. And yeah, a little smirk. Crinkly eyes with your little smile. Like, <laughs> Well, and it's interesting to me that you brought up Swing Kids earlier and the fact that Christian Bale becomes a Nazi in there because I was, maybe the casting was perfect for this because I was so truly not expecting Christian 
well, Jack Kelly, his character to scab. Mm -hmm. And so maybe Christian Bale just has a face for becoming a villain or something Mm. like that. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of his casting as Batman, because as he's gotten older, he really has the capacity to emit these kind of like dead shark eyes. (laughs) Yeah, but that was just such a shocking thing to me. I mean, it's not shocking when you hear the actual history that that happened. That seems, Mm. I mean, unfortunate, but like historically something that would make sense. But Mm -hmm. just for the course of the story, the fact that they kept that in and also for such a long chunk of the movie's time, like it feels like he's a scab for a really long time. Yeah. And like my biggest note for it storytelling wise is that like all these plot machinations, like there are like multiple scenes of Pulitzer like plotting with his henchman in his office (laughs) as he looks out over his beautiful map painting of New York City. Oh, it's so good. And it's like, kids don't need this. Kids don't want to watch Robert Duvall. Like, kids don't want to... Like, how many scenes do you expect children to sit through where there are no children in the frame? Right, yeah. Like, there were too many. Mm -hmm. But I think kids love a really villainy villain. Mm -hmm. You know, kids love a guy rubbing his hands together in his office with his cronies (laughs) saying, how are we going to get more money? Right? He literally says, like, but I want more money. (laughs) Like, kids (laughs) love that. That's so straightforward. It's so pure. (laughs) Robert Duvall is really acting the same way as if I just called my grandfather up and was like, hey, do you want to act in a (laughs) civic theater play about newsboys? Yeah, right. He's like, give me the character in three words. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like avaricious, voracious, creepy. Got it. No, I really love that. I think currently, right, it's very much in fashion to give you know, a complex villain, an interesting villain. Mm -hmm. I love just a villainy villain, just a guy who wants money, who wants to crush these adorable, you know, children in (laughs) suspenders and little caps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I love our new kind of take on villainy and especially Disney movies. I love the Stone of Tefiti. And like, it's true to how trauma works. But you know what else is true to the world as we know it? Like creepy old men who are like, just like (laughs) imitate the sounds of an adding machine in the middle of a sentence. (laughs) And he starts screaming like the actual Wicked Witch of the West at the end, getting water thrown on her when he hears the children chanting. Yes, (laughs) oh my God. (laughs) It is like that. It is, you know what? This never occurred to me, but it is... It is very Wizard of Oz. I mean, Mm. I think like the Wizard of Oz inhabits, I don't know, like a particular flavor of Hero's Journey or something that like a lot of great movies, especially for Mm. kids and adolescents, emulate. Mm -hmm. And just the thing of like, you know, having an audience proxy character who shows up like Dorothy Mm -hmm. and is like, what's going on? And I also love, I love movies where characters get progressively more dirty as the movie continues. Mm -hmm. And like the more David comes into his own, the dirtier he is. Uh Mm -hmm. Which is also, I think, why Sarah struck me as a rich girl because everyone else is filthy and she's Mm. wearing these pristine white (laughs) blouses the whole time. It's true. It's like, where'd she get that? She's working as well. Like, what's (laughs) She doesn't get all like dingy by the end of the day in the factory. Right. Yeah. What's she doing all day? Yeah. Because she's working too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's maybe implied that she's a laundress. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they say. I mean, I guess it feels like she's just likely to be a garment worker because Mm. she's a coded but never explicitly stated young Jewish woman in 1899. Mm -hmm. What are your feelings about David as a character in general for both of you? When I watch it lately, I always think about how there's a total Moses and Aaron thing going on with Mm. these two characters where like David is the one who like knows stuff and is telling Jack what to say because basically and I love how they set this up because Jack and David have their first day selling papes together. (laughs) They get chased by Jason Siegel's dad from Freaks and Geeks, who doesn't want him to do any drumming no more. Yep. And <laughs> so he like spots Jack and chases him and David and Les, David's little brother, to like the top of a roof where they hide successfully. And he says, Sullivan, wait till I get you back to the refuge. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just the best. Yeah. So good. 
So after they spend this wonderful and traumatic day together, where they also go into um, Meta's vaudeville show, right. which is Anne Margaret's character in the daytime, <laughs> and then come out at night with David saying, that was great, which is interesting, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> which we talked about a lot on fanfiction.net and what that implied and what the missing footage would have involved. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna cul-de-sac myself. There's chemistry for these boys from the beginning, right? Yeah. And like, I realized that like, we have gotten into a time on the internet where like, we live in like a post Larry world where like One Direction fans have mm -hmm. in part created a culture of like the need to create conspiracy theories to prove that like Louis Tomlinson's baby is being played by a doll so that we can continue <laughs> to believe that Whoa. Him and Harry Styles are a couple. So like <laughs> sort of slash fandom shipping has gotten to a very weird place. But mm -hmm. in 2003, it was basically about watching a movie that nobody liked from 10 years ago <laughs> and formulating theories about the characters in them that you would never tell Christian Bale about because yeah. you seem to have moved on and you were happy for him. <laughs> yeah. I love the Freaks and Geeks dad transposing himself into this new setting because so much of the whole plot of this movie like the characters kind of the plot beats feels the same in a lot of ways as any like children in school movie right like children hmm. stand up against the mean principal children beat the like oh. team of like bully baseball team right like any of these kind of children band together to like you know, stand up for what's good mm -hmm. in a lovely way. It's like, yep, this is it. Like there's the one scene where they kind of ransack the newspaper office and it's like, this is a food fight. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Food yeah. Fight. And they're playing this very twinkly, playful music mm -hmm. too. Exactly. You know, stories about collective action are hard to dramatize in a way that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that in certain mm -hmm. ways that is true. Right. You have to go to a lot of dull meetings <laughs> if you're like an organizer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is the same as like the breakfast club teens mm -hmm. like show that mean principle. Right. Like children mm -hmm. against power. It's all the same story and it's great it's the funnest story mm. ever <laughs> like the kids doing it yeah uh yeah maybe this is a good place to start talking about like the politics of this movie and how influential those obviously have been yeah well first of all i kind of was thinking while watching this i was like it's very interesting that this movie was ever made at all but it does mm -hmm. make a little bit more sense if you think about this being the era of like the journey of Natty Gan, wild hearts mm. can't be broken, little women, mm. mm -hmm. white fang, you know, mm. other stuff I'm not mm. thinking of. But like, I feel like the like mid 80s into the mid 90s, there were a lot of like period piece movies for tweens, mm. mm -hmm. which I want to say were successful partly because Christian parents suspicious of the media let their children watch them because they mm. would never suspect that a movie that takes place in the 1800s would contain so many boys thrusting <laughs> there is a lot of thrusting they didn't have sex back then yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah the pure days the 1800s when nothing bad was happening <laughs> no it was just nice women just wore lace collars apparently oh, yeah. and people reproduce like worms you just cut them in half <laughs> when a child laborer was cut in half in a factory you got two child laborers after a brief stay in the sick bay so that's good <laughs> like crutchy <laughs> Sweet crutchy. Yeah. But I was also thinking just about this being made in the 90s. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of in the zone of like lowest union activity ever, right? Disney wasn't worried about a union mm. actually yeah. causing any trouble for them at that point compared to, say, today. Mm. We're post Reagan at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's like we're in like this neoliberal kind of shifting mm -hmm. scape at the beginning of the 90s, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, was there like some big strike or something like that that inspired people to be writing about this. And there was a Writers Guild strike in 88 that was like a big deal. <laughs> oh. Wow. I think it's the longest Writers Guild strike and maybe there's some more accolades to it as well. But yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense as to why these writers were thinking about this then, you know? That's great. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I don't know. I find it wonderful to think that companies like Disney have more reason to be afraid of unions than they had then. And mm -hmm. I currently believe 
Newsies was important because it was a movie that was shown to like kids who weren't prone to making trouble mm -hmm. because you were way more likely to see it if you were in choir yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. And I think that this movie, like, I like to think that it embedded itself in a lot of like rule obeying millennial consciousnesses mm -hmm. and then sort of burst forth in the last 10 years. I can't think of any other movies that are so overtly pro labor or even subtly about it you know like right especially for a disney movie to have such a political which is you know as you've pointed out i don't know a ton about disney but like they are they try to be like as agnostic as possible to like the fluctuations of politics right yeah yeah and i mean their you know their belief system within their films is like believe in yourself and it's like <laughs> well okay but it does kind of depend on what you're trying to do when you think about it and newsies is like believe in yourself Unless you're a scab. If you're a scab, we're going to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I was thinking about kind of the common Disney theme of the power of friendship, right? We love the power <laughs> of friendship in a children's movie. Yeah. But it's fun when it's like, yeah, me and my friends are going to take down Pulitzer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? The power of friendship can topple a newspaper magnate. <laughs> That's, That's the, the power, power of friendship, friendship right there. <laughs> yeah. We also have to talk about Christian Bale's performance in this movie. My understanding is that he signed on to this when it was not a musical. Mm -hmm. And then Disney was like, we are going to make it a musical. And we still want Christian Bale to star in it, despite the fact that he neither sings nor dances. His main <laughs> skills are, you know, Shakespeare and accents but we're gonna make him sing and dance god damn it and uh he doesn't like to talk about this movie and i think we can see why i was thinking a lot watching this movie um you know because last time i was here we were talking about titanic and it was such a weird like bizarro pairing of movies to have in mind right titanic's taking place in 1912 this is in 1899 they're both these period mm -hmm. pieces they both have a young boy hero named jack mm -hmm. great point who's like a tumbleweed rolling in the wind like you know things could have gone slightly different for either one of them and they would be in the other shoes <laughs> but Leonardo DiCaprio is like, this is the role you were born for, young child. And Christian Bale, yep. it's like, oh, buddy, like, sorry. <laughs> sorry about this one. <laughs> I know. And you can tell that he's like, I'm going to be a grown-up actor soon, and I'll be in David oh. O. Russell movies. Oh, my God. Because he didn't want to be like a boy heartthrob, I think. Although he did kind of consent to it happening in Little Women, interestingly. But yeah. that's a better script, unfortunately, I have to say. And he didn't have to sing. He didn't have to <laughs> yeah. sing. Yeah, crucially. He didn't have to do his little like cowboy dance down the empty nighttime streets of New York. <laughs> okay, so we're talking about a song and dance number called Santa Fe. And to me, the cruel thing about this is that in the age before autotune, children, mm -hmm. Christian Bale, he has to sing for a sustained period of time all by himself. He has to dance for a while in a wide <laughs> shot all by himself. Yeah. Like there's no hiding. There's no attempt made to like cover up exactly what he's doing like they do today when they have somebody who like isn't doing something they're happy with. They'll just like be like, ah, and he's in silhouette. There's right, yeah. someone else is dancing. Great point. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with that scene and I feel a lot of love for it, but I think it was actively and unforgivably cruel to keep it in the movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think there's an interesting connection between New York and Santa Fe, or maybe Kenny Ortega had just recently seen Rent. Yeah. <laughs> like there's so many movies that I can think of where somebody in New York is like pining for Santa Fe. It's potentially as far away as you can think of or like as different as you can think of an, an environment compared to New York, which mm -hmm. is, you know, skyscrapers and you can't see the stars. And then Santa Fe is all, mm. you know, desert and cacti and cowboys and all that. Yeah. And when your your life is like not going so hot or you're, you know, alone, it's nice to think of your natural opposite and want to go towards it. And I mean, I do. I love the lyrics of all these songs. And I love, you know, Jack, when he's singing Santa Fe, I think the opening is when I dream on my own, I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. Aww. And like his dream is of being like content in solitude, Yeah, I think. And like, mm -hmm. and that's the cowboy dream. And I do think it's meaningful that like this movie comes around to like 
you know, Teddy Roosevelt shows up. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, who really was not a great reformer of child labor, actually, but whatever. Yeah. Um, he's someone people... Re- Wouldn't it be great if they were like, what? Well, it's your friend, you know, Emma Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> but Teddy Roosevelt shows up and like Jack has the choice to like have some money and go to Santa Fe and live his dream that he's been singing mm-hmm. about with such commitment this whole time like and to do it not as a scab but as a strike leader mm-hmm. and he realizes that like by going on strike he's found the family that he secretly wants and oh, I think yeah and I think yeah. it's very powerful that this movie was like do you know where you find the family you're looking for through unionizing mm-hmm. that Reminds me of a conversation I had recently with a very dear friend of mine who in adulthood has been having trouble making new friends. You know, they've moved Mm -hmm. to a new city and they asked how I make new friends. And I was thinking about it and I was like, I think the only way I even know how to make friends ever is just by being involved in art projects and things like that. And I yeah. th- I think that's the same thing as being involved in unionization. Like it's the same yeah. mm-hmm. muscle. Because you're all commonly working towards something that, like, theoretically is a mode of expression or a mode of change. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got really, again, to compare it to last time with Titanic, right? Where I started weeping like the instant mm-hmm. the movie started and did not stop for the entire mm-hmm. many hours. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And this one, I was like, thank goodness, you know, I'm cool. I'm collected. There's no way I'm crying at Newsies. Like, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. That's stupid. <laughs> that would never happen. And they didn't get me until the very end when all the other child workers come spilling out yeah. with their precious little signs. <laughs> Fairness. Girls need rights, yeah. too. What was that one? <laughs> it was like, so good. Friends. Child solidarity. They're beating the bully. Yeah. <laughs> For as laggy as the middle part is and as much as it kind of seems to lose track of where it's going for a minute there the ending of this movie like specifically the whole montage of printing and distributing the newsies banner Mm -hmm. and the song once and for all which i love because it's like so fucking intense like it has a lyric that goes better to die than to crawl and it's Whoa. like yeah okay better to die than to crawl i feel like some of the kind of labor rhetoric in this movie goes hard actually yeah, yeah. like these you know children child actors in a movie for children kind of expressing concepts that many of my adult peers now in the year 2022 can't quite mm. you know express or accept mm-hmm. yeah. but little you know brainiac david's like what about your self-interest you're losing so much money on this strike mister you know why are you doing it and good old jack says it's not about the money it's about the power it's like yeah yeah that's it yeah mm-hmm. you know i was thinking a lot about my book publisher harper collins the workers in their union are on strike right now oh they have mm-hmm. been for 30 days now the management <laughs> has not come to the table has not acknowledged them at all wow and people, you know, kind of in the book industry are like, they're losing so much money. They're losing so much kind of credibility in the industry. All these agents are refusing to submit mm. projects to them right now. Why are they doing this? Old Jack, it's not about the money. It's about the power. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea that was going on. Yeah, it's really intense. They're the only unionized house of the big five book publishers. Wow. Wow. You know, for obvious reasons. I was just thinking about it a lot watching this movie because so many of the conflicts and the kind of villains certainly are exactly the same. Um, And it's kind of wild how much they're just precisely the same as they are in a 1992 depiction of 1899. (laughs) Yeah, and it is so interesting that this is specifically about a strike in media mm-hmm. yeah you know mm-hmm. which disney famously is in you know and it, the movies that i can think of that depict strikes or come close to it the kind of trifecta i have in my head is like norma ray mm-hmm. so you have silkwood which is about worker safety because we have characters at like a plutonium plant or something in oklahoma and then in a move that i think kind of shows how politics have changed around this like 17, 18 years later, you have Aaron Brockovich. Mm. And I love Aaron Brockovich 
more than some relatives I have. But like, I am conscious of the fact that like the overall kind of payoff and arguably message of it is like, yeah, we got justice. We got those corporations good. They paid a bunch of money and now Marg Helgenberger can afford healthcare her, for her children. Mm. And it's like, yes, this is a very satisfying ending. And also Aaron Eckhart can like stop being a dick and like see what all this was for. <laughs> but also like nothing has changed. Like no. they're just going to do mm -hmm. it again and hope they don't get sued. Mm -hmm. Right. I was kind of interested and slightly charmed in Newsies, the way they kind of, you know, transpose what's essentially a very boring demand, right? Like about yeah. the number of cents you're paying per newspaper that you're buying to sell, right? Mm -hmm. That's like pretty granular. That's pretty dull. That's not very going to catch the imagination of a child watching this movie. And so very mm -hmm. quickly they change it to rights, right? Like you can't take our yeah. rights away, which is like, yeah, I'm an eight-year-old. I can get behind that, right? Yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> I think as an adult, I'd be like, come on, like what? No, this is a little, what? But it's like, this is a movie for children. I love it. Tell it in language that a child <laughs> will get. Right, because mm -hmm. some kids that are watching this when you're, you know, let's say like the earliest kid is like five, six, seven years old. Mm -hmm. You like probably haven't even learned how to, you know, count change yet necessarily. So like, <laughs> yeah. they literally don't have a concept of it. And I, I think one of the reasons that this movie sticks is because it's a children's strike, obviously. Mm -hmm. One of my grand fears of my life has been the loss of my values and the loss of my integrity as I get older. Mm -hmm. And hopefully mm -hmm. that's not happening. But one of the great things and also one of the tricky things about becoming an adult is that you learn how to compromise mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you learn relativity. And so something that seems like black and white to you when you're 15, 16, 17, there's right and there's wrong. When you look at it when you're 30, it might seem not quite so black and white. That can be good, but then also that also is what leads to the dissolution of people's ability to actually stand up for what they do believe is right. And when there are, you know, clear ways, even if it's not like this is right, this is wrong, making things better. There's something so wonderful about this being a kid's strike because like the kids know what is right and what is wrong. And all of these adults, even Bill Pullman, like <laughs> he's not always there for the kids in the way that they would want him to be. And adults fundamentally are just always going to have sort of a compromised view sometimes. It's like the muscle of working through that and actually acting on what you really believe is right rather than hopefully just like becoming fully evil like Pulitzer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's like worth thinking about the fact that like society has to continue listening to the young because I think, you know, young people, mm -hmm. there's a lot of perspective they don't have. There's a lot of stuff they don't understand, but also like they're not yet bought into a system that forces people to right. compromise more and more the deeper they get into mm -hmm. it. And like, I always think of being a kid watching, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy talking about what we were then calling the greenhouse effect and talking to my mom mm -hmm. about it and being like, it really seems like this is going to be a problem. And she was like, no, it'll be fine. And mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. kids are able to be doom mongers in a way uh -huh. <laughs> that adults can't, um, among other things. Yeah. I love so much the whole plot line of David's adorable baby brother, who's just scamming everyone with how cute he is. Oh. <laughs> Is his name Les? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Less is more. <laughs> Let's talk about some side newsies, because I feel like like one of the great things about newsies from a fandom perspective was that there's like fucking 20 named newsies in this movie. Uh -huh. And a lot of them have one line. But if you watched it 35 times like we all did, then like you can pick them out. You know who they are. And then. Mm -hmm. Within kind of the moment in the fandom that I was in on that platform, there was a real consensus as to like what different characters were like. And we had this sort of mm -hmm. and it makes me think about how I think there's something particularly catnippy in a fandom perspective for like a group specifically of teenage girls encountering a text that is like very rich and vibrant and yet feels incomplete mm -hmm. and like to compare this to the one direction fandom like i do think there is a, a straight line between them where it's like you're aware like you know that you're seeing something like very exciting but you're like there's so much more i can feel it mm -hmm. but side newsies i'm curious about like carolyn what 
side newsies did you notice or like do you think what names do you maybe remember somewhat because I feel like it's like hard to notice a lot of them until you've seen it several times. I think my favorite one is the Brooklyn kid. Oh my Me god, we too. haven't even talked about this yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah, what's his name? It starts with an S. Spot Conlin. Spot Conlin. Jack's ex-lover, I would say, and many in the fandom did along with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he's who I would have been interested in were I younger, you know, getting into this. Claire, who's your favorite side newsy? Oh, also Spot for sure, like my 10-year-old self when he you know, his grand moment, never fear Brooklyn is here when they're brawling with the scabs. And then he whips out his slingshot and starts shooting scabs with it. Oh, that was it. That was it. That's what you want in a man. (laughs) There's so many misfires in this movie. And then there's like so many moments where they just nail it. And you're like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And my favorite side newsy is, of course, racetrack. I love racetrack. I love him so Mm. much. And I also love that Max Casella was like 25 years old when they were filming this and he was working with one billion teenagers who were all like jumping around all horny. And then he would like go home to his apartment with his adult girlfriend. And I assume just be like, (laughs) (laughs) I definitely also have a soft spot for Crutchy for sure. Mm -hmm. I love Crutchy and The whole plot surrounding Crutchy, I think, is part of where this movie slows down. And also it's just like, it's so sad. Like, no one suffers like Crutchy does in this movie. Mm -mm. And the the moral of it seems suspect, you know, which is that if you're disabled, then the Delancey brothers will get you. And that also, like, being in an institution is like the path you would choose rather than being rescued by your comrades. Right. Totally. And a whole movie about the power of friendship and they can't break their friend out of juvie. Like, (laughs) yeah, it feels like Crutchy is being used as a plot point in a way that feels demeaning to the spirit of Crutchy. I agree. I also want to talk about how it feels as if they hired a whole mess of teen boys, let's say like three dozen. Mm-hmm. And then apparently Disney, whoever was in charge of this, I tend to think that whoever was like supposed to be overseeing the production of this movie was like busy having an affair at the time and like really didn't check in <laughs> on it until it was too late for a lot of changes. Yeah. <laughs> it also feels as if Disney had some kind of obscure rule where they were like, all right, Kenny, you can have a dozen kids that can sing a dozen kids that can dance, and a dozen kids that can act. But none of those kids can be the same kids. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why did they do that? Why? Why? <laughs> I think it's great. You know, give them opportunity to grow. I don't think you should be able to do everything all at once. <laughs> well, there's something uncanny yeah, about kids that are too good at doing any of these things. You know, it doesn't feel great, I think. It's nice. The roughness is nice. So I have a question. Is this the reason that you got into journalism? (laughs) Mostly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They do talk a lot about the power of journalism in this movie. They really do. Kind of for better, you know, Mm -hmm. unclear where the movie comes down, I think, on the power of journalism. I mean, I think that this movie is actually thinking about it from an adult perspective and having seen a lot of movies that like dramatize journalism Mm -hmm. for better and for worse that this movie is actually like unusually accurate about like, yeah, there's the power of the press, but then also that's dependent on the fickleness of the press and of Mm -hmm. the companies that control media because they are all representatives of the forces of capital. Right. You know, and really journalism is where like capital and truth intersect in a very dramatic way. And I feel like this Mm -hmm. movie actually does represent that where Dutton is like, yeah, I can't cover your strike anymore because my paper won't let me because we all have to stop covering the strike because we're being forced to because our hands are tied because we're adults. And this is very cheesy, but I'm just going to say it. The moral of this movie is to take the power of the press into your own hands Mm. and uh, look around. (laughs) (laughs) I love so much the part where they're sneaking into Pulitzer's basement And Jack's like, shh, not a whisper. We have to be very quiet or he'll wake up and stop us (laughs) in this basement. (laughs) And then they run a platen press. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, creak, 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 creak. <laughs> Do you think that it was specifically because in a lot of ways of the kind of roughness of it that you felt so free, you know, as a fandom? Yes, totally. Because I think with something like Titanic, for example, like to keep looking at these two together, like Titanic feels so incredibly fully cooked because it was like, I don't know if James Cameron has confirmed this, but I've like seen people argue that it's like so complete and thought out as a movie that like in the scene where like the captain and Mr. Ismay mm. are talking about when they'll arrive in New York and Ismay is like, why don't you arrive early and blah, blah, blah. You can see a woman kind of like startle slightly and register what they're saying. And mm-hmm. I've seen people argue that that's based on like, we know that conversation happened because a woman overheard it from a nearby table. So like stuff like that, right. where it's like everything has been thought about. Mm-hmm. And with this movie, you're like, some of this has been <laughs> thought through, but like there's so much space for you as a fan to like get in there and like keep building the world. It, feel, it felt like a half built world, mm-hmm. really. I feel like that's got to be one of the components uh, or ingredients of what makes a great campy movie. And I would love to watch a video essay about the evolution of camp and Kenny Ortega. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that this was him until the end of the movie when I was talking with Alex and he mentioned it. And I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. But then I also learned that Dirty Dancing was Kenny Ortega. Yeah. Is that true? Isn't that amazing? Which is not a campy movie. Well, maybe. I don't know. Well, yeah, it depends on your view of camp, but it feels like it's like thought out more than something like Newsies for sure. Right. Yeah. Maybe what makes a great movie campy or what makes a great campy movie is that it's like sourdough bread <laughs> and there's like little holes in it that you can yes. like fill in with different condiments of your own choosing, you know? That's beautiful. Like Rocky Horror is also a great example. Yeah, there's like room for audience perspective. Yeah. And participation. Well, it's interesting, Claire, that you're talking about the HarperCollins stuff. I've been thinking about the history of the labor movement and how, you know, strong it was and how what a big presence it had in like daily life and disruption Mm -hmm. in a good way it had for daily life in the first part of the 20th century and how the labor movement now feels like some like weak broth that maybe somebody made out of a couple (laughs) carrots or something like that in comparison to like how it feels in like the daily life of people. Right. Um, Even though it's stronger now than it was, you know, 30 years ago. Mm And I wonder how much of that has to do with the advent of technology and people being like further and further away from their actual work colleagues Hmm. and not being like physically necessarily next to each other all of the time. And, you know, the more that we work from home, the more separated we are from our coworkers, which I'm sure, you know, there's lots of good things that come with that. But that also if you're not actually physically interacting with people all the time you don't know them in that particular capacity so then Mm -hmm. it's like you don't necessarily have the same physical opportunities to collectivize and to Mm -hmm. share body language with each other Mm -hmm. yeah I think there's kind of as far as you know being physically distant from one another I think there's that that you're talking about and kind of the one-two punch also of this like (laughs) massive surveillance apparatus of the tools that we do have, Mm -hmm. right. To connect with our faraway colleagues. Right. You know, at the same time for people who do work in proximity to one another, right. The power kind of of the bosses is just so intense right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Like look at the Amazon union Mm -hmm. drive in Mm -hmm. Alabama, you know, there's like the warrior met coal mine have been striking for like nearly two years at this point, mm-hmm. right? And so I think even in industries or workplaces where you are together, there's just a really different set of challenges. Mm-hmm. Right. This is like me speaking to my personal experience and kind of my the way my I think my parents saw things. But I think I grew up and was not alone in the sort of millennial mentality that like if you were on the like college to white collar job track, that like you didn't have to worry about any of this because Mm -hmm. at nice jobs in publishing or academia, like you'll be fine. It's not like you're working in a factory getting your scalp torn off like in a Dear America book. Mm. And then I became an adjunct and I was like, well, yes, my scalp is intact, but I am pulling out a lot of my hair because of stress. So, you know, it's so meaningful to me that a lot of the unions that we're seeing emerging and being formed are in newsrooms and in academia and in sort of industries that I think were falsely marketed as being 
exempt from the problems of labor exploitation when in mm -hmm. fact the sort of prestige of the work is able to camouflage mistreatment of your labor force. Mm -hmm. So right now with the Harper strike, right, the Harper Union, mm -hmm. like a lot of unions at kind of culture, like culture workers and academia, they're organized under the UAW or the United Auto Workers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the management is always in their emails like our union, the United Auto Workers, <laughs> right, like really trying to hammer on that as though it's like. What what is this like disgusting blue collar labor? No, oh we my are God. right, <laughs> which I think would have and has played better, you know, five or ten or twenty years ago. But like in this moment, I think things are changing a little bit so that people mm. hear that line and it doesn't quite work on us the same way that it right. might yeah. have. <laughs> which is very exciting. I would also love it then if the the adjuncts sort of went around to the Teamsters one day and we're like, hello, could we form an alliance? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like the weak broth that I was talking about, like, is not necessarily about the actual power of the labor movement that's happening mm -hmm. right now. It just feels like in terms of the amount of water relative to the number of carrots. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And like how massive these companies feel, which I'm sure that's how it felt you know, in situations past as well, but these conglomerates and like going up against Amazon or going up against mm -hmm. these big publishing companies, going up against all of that. Like it is a David and Goliath story, which is also mentioned in Newsies. <laughs> Love it. Which is why he's named David. <laughs> and yeah, it's just like the scope of it just feels, you know, bigger than any one individual is able to actually conceptualize, especially me. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's what I'm referring to rather than mm. the actual like strength of the actual movement. Totally. Well, and I think it's a really potent metaphor, right? Because it's simmering on this little pot on the flame, right? And the flame is the organizing, mm -hmm. the flame is the workers. And so you just keep it boiling and then it gets stronger and stronger. And there you go. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. There is also something creepy to me about the fact that like we have David's family who are very explicitly coded as being Jewish, but we never mm. say it. Mm -hmm. And then Mr. Mr. Weisel. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Played by Michael Lerner, whose nickname is weasel almost like some kind of horrible anti-semitic stereotype or something that was like strikingly <laughs> really out there yeah very rough right yeah especially considering that like one of at least in california where i went to high school like one of the only books that you read about the holocaust is by Elie Wiesel, which hmm. is like the same last name. Oh, wow. God. So like, I feel like that's a name that people are familiar with. Wow. I'm pretty sure that this was Disney during the Eisner years. And Michael Eisner mm -hmm. is a terrible human being as far as I can tell, but he did do a fairly good job running the company. And when he first came out to run Disney, I think received like a lot of anti-Semitic pushback just from people really? working under him. Yeah, like not in a particularly aggressive way, but just like just sort of a constant like low level hum, mm. I think, to some extent. So this the company then putting out a movie featuring this character in 1992 is just like right. you're like where the how did this happen yeah. they're like we at least have to show the kids in this very idealistic film that anti-semitism exists you're like okay like do you have to right <laughs> and we have to demonstrate it as if we are creating anti-semitic propaganda just so they know just so they know what it looks like it's like yeah this is not titanic we're not reproducing <sighs> precisely what happened you can do anything you want this is newsies this is an open universe do whatever you want <laughs> don't do that like <laughs> god i do love the delancey brothers who are effectively menacing it is also like as i got older i really started to ask myself the question like so when they're in that alley mm. cornering sarah are we just supposed to know what they're gonna do oh right i was gonna say that was like sort of a trigger warning moment um yeah for sexual assault just to be clear and also then like i mean it's worth pointing out too that this is the moment that catalyzes jack abandoning his new life as a scab because he hears right. his female love interest screaming about to be sexually assaulted that he's definitely interested in. And he's going to show her that 
by rescuing her from sex attackers. I know. And he doesn't even fucking talk to her about it. Yeah. He's like, I'm just going to abandon my values and you'll just know that it's to protect you. Yeah, I know the. I mean, this is yeah, this is sort of the imperfection of it. And I think maybe another component that makes it so useful in fandom that like you have this wonderful thing, you have this beautiful guitar and the case is like covered in like all this weird, gross, like, <laughs> I don't know, just like this horrible mural. And you're like, let's just take the guitar out of the case and let's just throw this guitar case in the alley. And let's just play the guitar and make our own music with the guitar and kind of yeah. lifting the characters out of the story and just kind of staying with the world and having these sort of different genres, different viewpoints, you know, a lot of original characters for the newsboys to fall in love with, a lot of pairing newsboys with each other, a lot of comedy, a lot of farce, a lot of, you know, romance stuff, but just like using it for something it wasn't intended for. Maybe that's kind of my key definition of camp. Mm. Also, if you're looking for behind the scenes newsy stuff, the kids who starred in Newsies, a group of them made behind the scenes while shooting this movie, a homemade horror movie called Blood Drips Heavily on Newsies Square. Oh, whoa. It's like a very, very special, beautiful, some might say perfect thing. <laughs> <laughs> Some might say. Well, Claire, would you be interested in giving us an astrological reading of our main characters by any chance? Yeah. Because you have written a wonderful book that I get so much joy out of. I actually reread it recently. But anyways, but you were an astrologer, which is why we were asking. <laughs> Yes, thank you. I am an astrologer. This is one of the great joys about astrology, right? Like we love talking about mm -hmm. ourselves, but we also love speculating mm -hmm. about people who are not real, but mm -hmm. <laughs> we love to talk about. They're real in our hearts and so are their yeah. birth charts. <laughs> <laughs> so Jack, Christian Bale, mm -hmm. our boy, <laughs> I feel like the most kind of stereotypical read on him is that he is a Leo, mm, right? He's the mm -hmm. face of the movement. He's like a leader of people. He, you know, brings people together. He is, is front and center. He's in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Like that's the stereotype. And in this case, I think it is true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David, you know, is kind of like right alongside Jack kind of leading this mm -hmm. and often telling Jack what to say or helping with the messaging, but not quite comfortable standing up on the soapbox himself. Mm -hmm. I think he is a Virgo. Mm. I can't quite tell you why. This is a little bit more of a vibes one, but the mm -hmm. vibes are Virgo. He kind of looks like a Virgo, I will say. He looks like a Virgo, doesn't he? Yeah. What does a Virgo look like? I don't know. I feel like he enunciates in a Virgo way. Well, Virgo looks clean until they become mm -hmm. the leader of a labor movement, until they I would say. <laughs> right. And then they're not afraid to get dirty. But he looks like he owns multiple rulers. <laughs> <laughs> he does. <laughs> I also love that when they're all stating their fantasies in King of New York, David's is an editor's desk at the Star Reporter, which is like, of course, that's your Virgo fantasy, my boy. Uh -huh. <laughs> You're going to edit everybody else. <laughs> You're going to be like, Cheez-Its has an M dash and a capital I. <laughs> I think for Crutchy, I'm going to say... He's a Pisces. Oh, Very self-sacrificing. Yes. He loves his friends so much. He's like, leave me here. Yeah. Don't worry about little me. We do spend a lot of time with Crutchy. I also we feel do. like Crutchy is like has a really soft heart, but also loves revenge. Yeah. Water sign. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think this is largely me flattering my own self, a Sagittarius. I think Spot is also a Sagittarius. <laughs> yeah, no, that that tracks. That definitely tracks. Right. Yeah. It's a fire sign. The like shooting, the bow and arrow, slingshot maps onto each other a little bit. Yeah. What that makes me think of is how he like lives on a tower on a dock. Like, does that connect for <laughs> yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. And also he's in Brooklyn, so that means he has to travel to get to the... Uh. He has to travel. <laughs> he's very kind of, you know... 
like anti-authoritarian. He's like, you can't tell me what mm-hmm. to do, Jack. And then he's like, but I'm going to do it anyway. Right. Because <laughs> right. I respect you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Carolyn, Jack's father abandoned him to go to the refuge. But who is the daddy? I'm going to say Spot. Because I think he is a very wonderful supporting branch of this big labor tree. And he really comes in clutch and he's a leader within his own realm. And then he is a supporter within other bigger realms. And I think that that's some big daddy energy. Yes. To me, this is the rare daddy-less film. Mm. Yeah. No daddy. Yeah, like, we're non-hierarchical. We're all friends here. (laughs) (laughs) Pulitzer wants to be the daddy so bad. And, you know, he's not. He's obviously not. I know. I do love how, like, there are decent adult men in this movie, but they're effectively powerless. Mm -hmm. Right? We have Denton, who can only do so much, and we have Sights of shut your mouth sights <laughs> um, and he can only do and then there's Teddy Roosevelt who does the tartuffe ending for us but he's not a character and I also love how when he shows up he's like an animatronic he's just like grinning like a madman raising and lowering his top hat you know he looks like the walrus from Alice in Wonderland <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true. I think that really speaks to why, like, as weird and mangled as the story is, it does feel like, in my opinion anyway, it, like, does get at something true at the heart of any real labor movement. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like so many movies about any of these themes are kind of, like, fall back on the idea of, like, well, we'll tell someone in power and they'll be like, oh, no. And... Mm -hmm. They'll fix it. And Teddy Roosevelt does that here to an extent. But like the actual like ending of the newsboy strike is all about like Jack and Pulitzer going mano a mano <laughs> and this like teenage boy like shouting down this angry old oligarch. Yeah. But I, I'm going to say Meta is my daddy in another mm, okay. way because she's wonderful and talented and wears great outfits and she throws a Newsies benefit at her music hall that she appears to run. So good for her. (laughs) Good for her. She's the world's greatest entertainer as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) I put on my vest. Wait, what is it? And I I stick stick out out my chest. (laughs) (laughs) The auditorium full of adolescent children are screaming their heads off for her. (laughs) It's the greatest. All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Madame Clairvoyant, Claire Comstock-Gay. We are so happy to have you here talking about this fine film with us. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, who produced the episode, who also uh, helped edit the episode, who guest hosted the episode. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Again, you can find us on Twitter at YouAreGoodPod. You can find us on Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Come and say hello. You can get bonus episodes and support the show by doing so by finding us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. Thank you to everyone who does that. We appreciate you so, so much. And we appreciate you for listening generally. We're just glad that you're here. We're glad that we get to do this. We cannot believe our luck. Thanks for everything. Thank you for being you. And remember, you, my friend, are good. All right. Have a wonderful week. We will talk to you soon.